there, folks. Welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. Episode number 50. 50. Holy cow. Where does time go? I launched this podcast during the 2018 Giro d'Italia. So let's call it May of last year. I just noticed that I was traveling a lot. Nothing really changed from my cycling career, except that I was able to pick and choose the places I was going. And amid that travel, I meet so many amazing people in the cycling industry or outside of the cycling industry, but they have the bike somehow woven through their lives. I decided I should bring a microphone along for the travel and just try to sit down and chat with some of these incredible movers and shakers, people in the cycling scene and out. So if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. If a podcast exists and there is no one out there listening, what then is the point? My friends, I thank you so much for listening. And being along for this ride, trust me, trust me when I say it means a lot. This episode is something special to me personally. Our guest is someone who has been on a very interesting ride over the years, as you're going to see. Over many, many years of my career. He is someone who is more ingrained in the sport, more woven into cycling than literally anybody I know. Joao Correa is our guest on today's episode Perhaps, perhaps a name not on the tip of your tongue, that's totally fine. He did, of course, have a massive multi-page feature about him in the, I think it was 2009, maybe 2010 New York Times. I often say, if I need a dinner reservation with Eddie Merckx, there's only one person I'm going to call to make it happen, and that is Joao. We're going to dive into everything that he does, but among others, he has an athlete management business. He represents some interesting names in the sport. Perhaps you've heard of Jens Voigt, Lawrence Tendam, <clears throat> Ted King. He doesn't just look after a bunch of geezers like us. Perhaps you've heard of Mads Peterson. He just won the world championships this year as a, what, 22-year-old kid? He and his group at Corso Sports Marketing, they represent Mads, Theo Gegenhart. In fact, and that's been their ethos from the beginning, which is to find unforeseen talent and really develop these athletes in their careers and as people. You, our listener, of course, know we're not earning pro basketball salaries. So how can these folks at Corso develop these cyclists in every facet of their lives? How can they be smart with their finances? How can they be great human beings? Another one, Ngamba Cycling Tours, ever heard of it? Hopefully, yes, because I talk a lot about it on this pod. I'm coming back from some jaw-dropping trip somewhere in Europe. But if not, check out ingamba.pro. Quick story there. I was with I was with Joao visiting him in his little hamlet of Chianti when the two of us were teammates on the Cervelo test team. The year was 2010. He showed me this little slice of heaven there in Italy. When everyone coming in from overseas to the world tour was living in Girona or Nice or Monaco or Lucca, Joao was in this town of maybe 100 people doing things his own way. He's surrounded by world-class wine, food, exceptional training and riding. Just a bit further from any major airport, that's probably the prohibitor from anybody else living there. And he wanted to introduce these exceptional facets of riding to the world at large, to cycling at large. So upon his retirement, he created Ngamba. He's got stories, folks. We've got stories to share in today's episode. We're going to cover his rise through the professional cycling ranks. He then segued to his globetrotting cycling career to turn globetrotting professional career in the publishing world. 
only to return to the cycling world having gained and lost some 50-odd pounds. It's incredible. We have got stories. Lastly, I want to take a quick minute and thank my personal sponsors for making this entire ride possible. Cannondale Bikes, SRAM Components along with Zip Wheels and Cockpit, Roca Eyewear, Velocio Clothing, Renee Ayers Tires, Saris Racks, and especially now that it's winter, indoor trainers. These guys and gals are the very best in the business. I'm in a special place in the cycling world where, yes, I've ridden these bikes and this equipment for a great portion of my professional career, but I'm now able to choose the companies with which I have a relationship. I pick the best products out there, and these are those. Thank you, Cannondale, SRAM, Zip, Roca, Velocio, Renee Ayers, and Saris for being along for the ride. That is it for now. Let's jump into this conversation with Joao Correa. Tell me about, what do you remember about your very first bicycle? My first bicycle? Actually, I have a photo of my first bicycle on that mantle. You know, when I was six years old, it was a uh, just a, a, a road bike from like a cheap store. It's probably steel tubing. Was, the brand was an Oliva. Huh. You know, that was my very, very first bicycle that I only used in one race. And then uh, I got a real bike. So, was this, were you in Portugal at the time or New York? It was in Portugal. Yeah, it was, okay. it was in Portugal. Um, someone just a moment ago called you Ron. That's right. I get um, all sorts of fun names. Ron you, is one of them. Yeah, Jerome how do you pronounce is another one of them. Full pronunciation of your full name, please. João. 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 That's so João three times. Yeah. Full João. name. Middle name? João Miguel da Silva Correia. Okay. What is, perhaps Ron, what is the strangest name you've ever been called? Jerome. I get Jerome every once in a while. Yeah. Always confuses me because uh-huh. I don't feel like a Jerome. I don't look like a Jerome. <laughs> I'm not sure what a Jerome looks like, but it's definitely, you know, Joao is four letters. Jerome has a solid six, I think. Uh-huh. Is is Joao, is that equivalent, is that like a John in Portuguese? Yeah, it's just John. Just okay. boring old John. All right. Although my Starbucks name is Bob. Ah, nice. Yeah, except that I'm so used to spelling my name for people that when they go, what's your name? I say Bob, and I immediately say B-O-B. Then I get a very strange look as if, I know we work at Starbucks, but we're not idiots, sir. (laughs) And then I tend to explain, no, really, my name is is João. I'm used to spelling it, but, you know, I use Bob at Starbucks. Then they just go, they just taser me or call the police, say, weirdo, get out of here. What is the name of the... The character that floats above the A in Joao. That's called a tilde. Okay. Yeah, tilde. Uh, tilde. You're a linguist. What are the two dots called? Those U- are umlauts. Okay. Umlauts. What about a flat line? I have no fucking idea. Okay. But it looks Danish. Yeah. Oh, totally. As do the umlauts. More German, you know, yeah. more scary, more, you know, yeah, German. Just ownership. Yeah. Get out of here. So your parents emigrated to the U.S. when you were, I believe, about 10 or 11 years old. Is that about right? 
Yes, I was 11 years old, and I guess immig- immigrated is a is a good name. We were former illegal aliens. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. So the did you guys come over as a family unit, or did dad come first, mom come first? Yeah, back then they didn't give Portuguese families, all of us, you know, visas yeah. together. Come on Because they knew we would just stay. Uh-huh. So my father came first, and then um, about four months later... My mother, my sister, and I applied for a visa with my uncle disguised as my father at the American Embassy oh, wow. in Lisbon with a letter from the Portuguese Cycling Federation saying I was coming over to watch the World Championships in uh, 1986 uh-huh. uh, because I was a bike racer and I had won a contest to come and watch the World Championships. The American Embassy gave us a, a, uh, a visa. We came and uh, I remember seeing my father at JFK got reunited with my dad and then we just never left. You know, and I look back on that now and I'm like, that could have been like a CIA op. Yeah. And it was like a total op. Yeah. You know, so that's bad. We were illegal for, I don't know, until 92, 93. Uh-huh. We got our green cards and uh, American citizens now. And until the current administration, I thought that we could no longer be kicked out. But I, I just, <laughs> now I'm a little scared that maybe they'll rescind that passport and say, get on over that other side of that wall, sir. Wow. Donald is only so welcoming to our friends from other countries. Um, did did any of your family, immediate family, speak any English when you came to the States? No English, no. I remember the very first word I knew outside of hello was USA Today. I remember a friend of my father's who um, was, I think, like Portuguese, but really had been here for a long time and he looked American. He had a cowboy hat. He wore cowboy boots. I thought that's what Americans look like. I remember him taking me down to one of those machines where you take out the newspaper. You bought a USA Today and he started telling me what the words meant and it started with USA Today. So, yeah. Nice. Which is, which is telling as you ultimately work in the publishing industry. But, yeah. but staying on track, what did your parents do immediately? What did they do for work? Did you, they, how'd they throw you immediately into school? How'd you learn English? My father worked construction. So at the time he was, uh, he was doing, uh, you know, always, basically always concrete work. My mother cleaned houses. Uh, I enrolled in the fifth grade at a school called Morse School in, uh, in uh, Sleepy Hollow, New York. At the time it was called North Terrytown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was put into ESL programming as a second language. And kind of flew through that, you know, like it was, it was really interesting because I, I really took to the language and about six months in, I asked to be uh, tested out. I managed to test out. I was put into remedial reading, you know, um, which was where ESL kids normally went after they were in regular classes. And then by the seventh grade, I was studying German. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of flew through remedial reading as well, you know, and then I started studying German and... Yeah, learned. Uh, you know, you're 11. You learn it pretty quick. So, so ESL. Are you surrounded by kids who are all learn all different backgrounds learning English? So you could be next to a, someone from Korea, Germany, Brazil. Yeah. That is exactly. Wild. Except in North Tarrytown back then, it was Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, yeah. Portugal. Yeah. You know. And how about? Okay, so you were a. You have a photo of your first bike behind us. Cycling is this thread that yeah. is strung through your entire life. You also have a, a pretty successful running career. So walk me through, talk me through 
running and cycling? Because I know it also takes you back to Europe a whole handful of times while you're still in your teenage years. Yeah, you know, I mean, cycling was something I always did. I started racing when I was six in Portugal. Um, you know, one every race I entered until I think I was nine or ten. And in Portugal, you actually have a lot of those races. Um, and then came here and brought my bike with me. And I remember the bike I brought, it was, a, it was an Allen, an aluminum frame. Um, and started, uh, was going to start racing here. My very first race here was the 1987 Tour of Somerville. <laughs> I believe it was the 9 to 11 age group category. You know, and there was this kid named Yanni Feldman, I think. We used to win all the kid races back then. And um, my father said, you sit on his wheel, you come around him in a sprint. And I didn't really like that, but that's exactly what I did. I sat on his wheel, I came around him in a sprint and, uh, you know, started racing here and winning a lot of races in the Northeast. You know, back then there was a lot of, uh, you know, 13, 14 races, 15, 16, um, you know, junior races. It was a huge, huge thing back then. Yeah, but now you don't have that anymore. But when I came, you could race, you raced in your age category, you know, so uh, did a lot of racing. Um, you know, because I was, uh, we weren't legal, I couldn't leave the country. So I only went back to Europe. Uh, I did my first world championships when I was 16, the junior worlds, which were in Colorado at the time in 91. And I was uh, not a junior yet, but I was able to do it because uh, I could represent Portugal. And then when I was 17, I went back to Europe for my second world championships. We thought we were going to get uh, called for our green card that year for interviewing. So the way it works is you go back to the country where you came from. And if you pass the interview, they let you back in. If you don't pass the interview, you they don't let you back in. Hmm. And I, I, they didn't call us. And then I was literally stuck in Europe. Um, and, um, you know, did the world championships, uh, in Athens, Greece, uh, applied for a visa to come back. They denied me the visa because, you know, Americans are you know, pretty serious about if you break the law once or you don't, <laughs> they don't let you back in. Yeah. Luckily I was, uh, sort of dating the daughter of the Finnish, uh, foreign minister and he arranged for me to, um, go apply for a visa in Helsinki. I went to the U S embassy in Helsinki. And uh, they asked, have you ever been denied a visa? I said, yes, uh, two weeks ago in Lisbon, which they said, thank you for being honest because that's called visa shopping and we would have denied your application regardless of whose daughter you're dating. Uh, and uh, they gave me a visa, I came back, came back to school. You know, they let me in the country amazingly, uh, finished high school. How long was that visa? That, it was like a student visa at the time. I was here in high school, so they said, we're going to give you a visa. Yeah. It's a student visa. That doesn't mean that they're going to let you in the country when you get in. That's up to the immigration officer that you go through. Yeah. You know, and I just remember like walking up to the dude, you know, and like giving him my passport and going, God, I hope he lets me in. And he just looked at me. He goes, you're coming back for school? I said, yes, yes, sir. Yeah. He stamped it. And I just remember hearing the stamp and going, oh, my God, thank oh, God. Man. Went through, finished high school. Went back to Europe to race the next year, second year junior, did Worlds again, got our got our green cards then, and then applied for citizenship, became citizenship years later. You Is know, it, so does the green card apply to the whole family, or could it go selectively? No, so basically, my father got his green card uh, through a work program in Florida, oh. uh, one of the amnesties back in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So once one, you know, once one adult gets the green card, they can apply for the rest of the family. My father got his, then my, my mother, my sister and I applied because we were under 18. We were able to get it through that. You know, it's a process back then. It was a lot easier than it is now. But uh, once we got the green cards, you know, then it's a five-year process to become citizens. All of us became citizens. 
Uh, is it pretty rubber stamp those five years? Or I mean, outside of like doing something absolutely stupid. Yeah, it's it's a pretty standard thing. And back and again, remember this is before nine eleven. After nine sure. eleven, everything changed. I don't know how it is now, but back then it was just kind of a process of you know you waited five years, you applied, you took a test. There's a language portion. There's a sort of history civics portion. As long as you passed that, you were good. You know, and uh, my father, my sister, and I all got it. My mother just refused to take the test because the test freaked her out. Yeah. And she is actually right now in the process of becoming a citizen now that they've moved back to Portugal. You know, <laughs> like, but she's literally never became a citizen. She's <laughs> becoming a citizen at, uh, you know, at the good old age of 67. Uh-huh. You know, do they? Fast forward to the present real quick, tangent. Do they split their time? Do they come to the States or are they Portugal? Yeah, so my parents, you know, two years ago, they re-immigrated back once my father and my mother stopped working and they went back to Portugal and are living there. And they come here, they probably spend two months a year here. My sister has kids, I have kids. So they come and visit the kids and see their friends. But but they're, you know, they're mostly there, which is quite, you know, it's it's interesting to look at them now because it's it's actually quite a difficult journey to leave a country you know, leave a culture you know, go into something completely unknown. In my parents' case, you know, they had fairly decent businesses there. You come and you do basically manual labor, you know, and then the thought is always you, you know, you raise your kids here, they get opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise, but you go back, you know, like once you retire, you go back and you retire there, but the country changes, you know, Portugal you know, 1986 was just as it was entering the EU. Today, it's a completely different country, but your memory is from that time period. Mm-hmm. So the integration for them of the country is actually, you know, it's 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 actually an interesting thing to see because they're completely Americanized as well. And then you go back to what you think the country is, but it is no longer that country, and you almost have to get used to everything again, huh. you know? So... Okay, second year junior, two-time racer at the World Championships. Um, one, I mean, how how selective is it? How difficult is it to make the selection to go race those two worlds? Given that you aren't in the country, you're not spending time, or you're not spending a whole bunch of time in Portugal. You're racing primarily in the states. Yeah. So for me, you know, it was interesting because I was was you know one of the top juniors in the country, but I wasn't a citizen, so I couldn't race for the U.S. Yeah. I couldn't do nationals here. You know, uh, but I had, you know, I, I had solid results and, and it was just a question of talking to people in Portugal. And, um, you know, back then, no, the Portugal didn't send anybody to Junior Worlds. Huh. So it was, it was just making sure they knew that I was willing to go and that I was willing to figure out a way to get there and figure out a what pay for myself to do all that stuff. And that's what I did. You know, the first one here in the U.S. was easy. You know, I was 16. I went. It was in Colorado, so I actually did Tour de Gila before. No kidding. You know, uh, to get used to altitude, a race called the Casper Classic, which back then was a race in Wyoming. Uh, I don't know if they still have that, but I did those races. I met the Dutch national team at the Casper Classic, and the coach, a guy named Egon van Kessel, couldn't believe that a 16-year-old kid was traveling around by himself doing these races, mm-hmm. and uh, invited me to train with the team. Uh, I became really good friends with a lot of those guys. And then the following year, when I went to Europe, I basically went to race in Holland. And my second Worlds and my third Worlds, I was actually with the Dutch team um, in terms of hotel and all of that logistical stuff. And they supported me uh, for those races. And, you know, after that, uh, Portugal started doing World Championships in the amateurs. And I was part of some of those teams and, you know, raced for the national team for a few years um, before turning pro 
in Portugal. And then eventually just saying, I'm done, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, um, you know, went to school. That's where the running comes in. And when I was in high school, I started running um, for the first time in, in the eighth grade. And I always played soccer in the off season. It's just what I did growing up in Portugal. And uh, my cycling coach, um, when I was a junior, basically said, you know, forget soccer. You, you're going to get injured. Just start running. Go off. Your, your school probably has a cross-country team. Why don't you go out and run in the cross-country team? So I went out in the eighth grade and, you know, introduced myself to the coach. And I said, hey, I'd like to run cross-country. They're like, sure, run cross-country. You know, my father had a pair of cross trainers that I borrowed, did my first meet, broke the record, did my second meet, broke the record, <laughs> broke the record of every race I entered that year. Coach was like, who the hell are you? <laughs> you know, and, and I, I said, um, I'm just a bike racer, you know, like I think that was the thing is that cycling gave you as a young kid, you develop your legs, you develop your lungs, you develop everything. And, you know, you're running against kids, I don't know, 13, 14 at the time. And they're just not, they're just not, it's not the same thing. Which is funny contrast now, take like the runners turned cyclists. Okay, Mike Woods is a great example at the highest level. Basically runners turned cyclists, all they know how to do is go flat out. All they know how yeah. to do is go full, full tilt. Whereas I think cyclists, the longer you're in the sport, you learn how to relax and you know how to warm up and then go a little bit harder. But like runners, all they do is go full gas. And so runners become good cyclists. You're sort of doing the opposite. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's funny because the same with rowers, right? You meet sure. these guys who yeah. get into cycling later and they're rowers and you just can't believe how strong they are. Running uh, cross country was like the most painful event in sports I've ever oh, done. God, it looks You're awful. literally just, you know, wanting somebody to put a bullet in your head the entire time, <laughs> you know? So, but, you know, I did that. And um, then in high school did the same thing and, you know, was able to get a bunch of scholarships and it kind of introduced this world to me that there was something outside of cycling. I always thought I'm going to be a pro cyclist. That's, you know, that's, that's my options. Mm -hmm. You know, it's either that or work construction somewhere. I didn't have growing up a lot of people around me that, um, you know, outside of the cycling community, you know, that had different ways, you know, within cycling, I knew some engineers, I knew some people who worked in publishing. I knew people that kind of what I refer to as took trains to work and they wore suits. You know, they drove to the train station, they got on a train, they went to work in Manhattan. You know, that's kind of what I knew. Uh, and when I went into school, I just kind of fell in love with it. I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, and I, I didn't do very well my first semester. I remember I went and was, I was just going to do a semester and I went to a school called Fordham and it was the only school that recruited me for running that agreed to just let me run cross country because all those scholarships are track. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was just going to do a semester, run that semester, uh, go back to Europe, continue to race. Uh, and at the end of that semester, I did really poorly. I, I almost, I had basically all D's, but I had worked my ass off, you know, and I just didn't, I didn't have the skills. Um, you know, in high school, I was in high school for two years, really, you know, the rest of the time I was racing in Europe, I got to college and I just couldn't absorb the material and do well in tests. And because I had done so poorly that semester, I decided I was going to come back the following semester. And I came back to do a second semester the following fall after racing. And then I started doing well. And I basically said, you know what? This was 1995, 96. Mm -hmm. I said, you mean I don't have to do the things that I see I'm going to have to do and I can just get a job yeah. and not have to race in the rain and, you know, live through that. Uh, now we're looking back what that period was like. 
and I, um, I just quit. I just stopped and I went to school full time, Yeah, you know, and that was it. How hard was that decision? I mean, Uh, it almost sounds like it was easy. Yeah. I mean, it was actually, it was actually not that hard, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I wasn't a pure, I'm not a Puritan. I don't look back at it now and say, you know, I, um, I quit because I knew what I had to do to be a pro. You know, I, I would have done that just like everybody else of that generation did it because that's what you had to do. Mm-hmm. And if you came that far and you made it to that level, you know, it, it's really hard to, to all of a sudden say, that's it, I'm not going to do it because you have no options. You know, you, you invested everything you do is, 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 is to that goal. You know, I, if I didn't have school, if I didn't have this, the, the scholarship, I, I, I would have kept racing. But the moment I had a, that scholarship and the moment I saw, you know, I, I can do something totally different with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it was like, it was, yeah, I didn't even have to think twice about it. I just made the decision and, and stayed in the U S and stopped riding, really stopped riding my bike. How much, how many mentors did you have around you? Were you talking to your family about it? Were you talking to the Dutch national team coach? Were you talking to your, your domestic coach or was this a pretty insular decision? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I look back on it a lot and I start thinking about the way I grew up and the people I had around me and sort of now what athletes have and the role I have in, in, in our athletes' lives. Um, I, you know, I had a lot of good people that were good people, good mentors around me, other cyclists, you know, guys that my coaches, you know, who were in engineers at Sikorsky, these, these guys called the Whalens, they were triplets, you know, they were, they were really solid people, you know, um, I had other cyclists that I knew that were professionals that kind of showed me, you know, what you could do in the business world, you know, in cycling, you know, I didn't really have a lot of people in Europe that I talked to about it. You know, uh, for me, it was just, you know, it was just something I felt that I had to do. You know, my parents, um, they were, you know, I didn't really talk much to my parents about it either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I had this opportunity, you know, and the school was the way to go. And I just sort of said, okay, I shifted all my focus, everything I had done as a cyclist to school and just focused on that. I literally like came back from when I just made the decision, I didn't take my bike out of the bike bag. Like it just mm. stayed there mm-hmm. and it stayed there for years. Like I stopped riding yeah. I completely shifted and started figuring out how do I uh, do well in school and then kind of started doing, um, in the summers, I started doing internships because then I knew I'm going to get a job. So I'm start doing different internships and different things to see what I like and to create opportunities. So it must be interesting from your parents' perspective, because professional cycling, as much as it is super cool and you have the grand tours and so on and so forth, it still is, I think it's a blue collar professional sport. It's yeah. not the massive salaries. I don't, I, I certainly think, especially in that era, it wasn't super enormous salaries. No. So, you know, your parents come to the States and, and they give you these opportunities and pro cycling is sort of a, a, a laborious job or, you know, they've, they've allowed you the opportunity to pursue education and pursue academia and pursue making your life better through education. So, yeah, I mean, that's gotta be a cool, yeah, turn their cap ultimately. 
Yeah, and back then, you know, like you didn't have the internet, you didn't have all the access to information we have now. Sure. You know, so professional cycling was this mythical thing that you saw in the magazines and you saw on TV, you know, once a year during the tour. Yeah. You know, like it was it was totally different than it is now where you're constantly able to see information to, through social media, through television, through actually going to these places, watching the races, you know, to go to Europe and come back is it's almost like taking a crosstown bus now. Yeah. You know? Um, I think for them, they, I think my father, I think if you, I think if you were to ask my father, my father would have said, by the time you were a junior, I already knew you weren't, you didn't have the commitment necessary to oh. make it to that level, at that level, you know? And like, it's pretty cut and dry, you <laughs> Thanks, know? Dad. It's like, it was like, you know, I remember my dad, you know, like I would, I, I would win most of the races I'd enter yeah. and it would still be like, yeah, but you did this, this, and this wrong, yeah. you know? Like, so I think my dad had a pretty stoic approach to it where like once I started getting interested in girls and, you know, I was interested in skateboarding for a little bit, like he literally <laughs> said, you're just not focused enough, forget it. Like, you know, so he was totally fine with, with school, you know, um, you know, I think school was, was, was something that, um, he was happy and my mom was happy that I did, you know, and I'm, I'm the first person in my family to graduate college, you know, and that's a a total gift from being able to come to this country. Sure. So, so continue our, our linear chronological trajectory. You're then full, full gas in school. Uh, what point does, well, for one, what are you studying? What do you ultimately end up with a degree in? I started, when I first started school, I declared my major as Russian studies. Ah, perfect. Yeah, and Russian literature. It was crazy. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I took Russian as a freshman. At the end of the first semester, the professor pulled me aside, really nice guy, and he said, I, you're a great guy. I really like you. You're a super nice guy. You're never going to learn this language. <laughs> And if you promise never to take another class with me, I will pass you. Oh my God. And it was it was funny because I really did struggle with Russian. So I uh, I quickly shifted to uh, the College of Business Administration, also known as the Coloring Book Academy, Perfect. and the College of B's and A's. Um, mm. I studied uh, business, international business, and I I ended up. Um, minoring in political science. Okay. So every semester I would take a totally different course than I had just something completely different. And that's how I bumped into poli sci and I really enjoyed poli sci. I ended up minoring, minoring in it. When in this array of your life timeline, when is the first time you spend time in Leckie and or Siena? So Leckie, my senior year in college, my, my, uh, college roommates and I, uh, it was four of us, um, we went to Europe uh, during spring break to eat and drink. We started in Paris, worked our way to Rome, Venice, Florence. And when we were in Florence, one of my, one of my uh, roommates, a guy named Eric Janot, who's now my personal lawyer of all things, um, said, hey, I, let's go to Siena. I was there with my parents last summer. It's a great little city, yeah. you know, and we went to Siena. And that's where I met Alessandro Stella, the shoemaker, and, you know, kind of the, 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 the chance happening that in a way, you know, changed the trajectory of my life and started my relationship with Italy. And ever since then, that was, I believe, 99. I've been there every year. You know, I ended up working in Milan eventually, having a house in, in near Siena in Tuscany and Lecce. Uh, and I've been back every single year. And obviously with Ngamba, the business was, was started there. You know, so it was one of these completely, you know, four college kids walking into 
a, sh- a shoe store of a guy who makes custom shoes. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, chance encounter. Um, decision to buy a pair of shoes and it was something that I remember thinking if I don't do this now and this was before you know obviously I couldn't afford a pair of custom shoes but you know I, I was fully Americanized by then and had a credit card you know and I just said I, I got to do this if I don't do this now I know I'll never come back here you know and if I don't come back here I know my life won't be as rich as as it can be if I do come back here and build a relationship with this guy and that's what ended up happening I built this amazing friendship with him and that was I don't know 20 years ago now sure. a little over 20 years ago that's so fascinating like I know the modern day Alessandro I've known him for mm, half dozen years a little more yeah I would love to have known him 20 years ago too yeah that is a energetic wild man so there are many facets of your life that I, I sort of know tangentially and I I mean I want to hit on them just so I don't miss them like how at what point are you owning a home in Milan or or when does publishing come into it? Is, is publishing straight out of college? Yeah, so I, you know, when I was in college, I started doing internships. Um, eventually ended up at, a, at Hearst, the Hearst Corporation, interning in their new media uh, division. And back then, this was, you know, 97-ish, you know, kind of the beginning of the internet, modern internet business Uh Worked there, went to uh, smartmoney.com, which was part of Hearst and Dow Jones. And basically by my senior year, you know, by 99, the, the internet was just booming. And I was running business development on the site, doing all my classes at night because I really wanted to graduate school. Um, and then immediately rolled into that job out of college, was moved to San Francisco, hmm. uh, ran business development for them out here in San Francisco. And in 01, you know, 2000, whatever it was, the bottom fell out. And my first job out of college, it was like, oh my God, this is work. This is amazing. (laughs) Every ad deal was a huge ad deal. You know, like there was money everywhere. It was unbelievable. You know, Mm -hmm. I I, literally, my first job out of college, my first year out of college, I I made, I think, 125 grand. You know, it was like insane. It was completely insane. I was like, this is amazing. I could be paying pennies right now racing a bike. And then it went kaboom. Yeah. Uh, kaboom, people went to business school. I wasn't smart enough to get into Harvard. And I, at the time I remember thinking, if I can't get into Harvard, then I'm not going to business school. So I went to Europe instead to work for Hearst in Europe. Hmm. Uh, I spent a year in, um, in Prague. Uh, and then I spent a year in Milan, uh, working for Hearst. And after those two years, I went back to New York and worked for Hearst in New York. Eventually, uh, ended up at Bicycling Magazine, which is part of Rodale. Interestingly enough, Rodale got bought by Hearst a few years ago. So I spent five years at Hearst and five years at Rodale. Uh, but that's how I ended up, how I ended up in publishing, you know, mm-hmm. sort of first the digital world, then the, then went to the magazine world and then eventually back to the digital world. What was the longest stint in there that you went? Without touching a bike. From the moment I got back to from Europe to, you know, that would have been, I don't know, 96 or so. Probably, you know, I'm sure I rode once or twice, 97, 98. I remember like Mark Lotz came and visited once. We went out for a bike ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really until I went back to Bicycling Magazine. You know, and I got to Bicycling... 04, 05, something like that, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that's when I kind of, all of a sudden I'm a bicycle magazine. And I remember this clearly, like I, I was doing a sales call at Cannondale and, you know, in, 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 in that world, it's like part of the sales calls you ride. 
So you have these meetings and then you do the lunch ride. And I would go on the lunch ride. And by then I was literally like, I don't know, 200 pounds, 205 pounds. I was massive. Mm. And I would go on these rides <laughs> and uh, I'd come back and people would say, wow, you know, for a fat guy, you're actually really good. And, you know, under my breath, I'd say, fuck you. You know, I, I used to be a pro, but <laughs> you know, like whatever. And, you know, and I, I like this happened a couple of times and, you know, I was working and I wasn't really riding, but I would, I would kid up and, and, and do the ride, these lunch rides. You know, I remember uh, being in Italy and, um, you know, meeting with Fausto Pinarello and then doing a Grand Fondo and, and he, afterwards he says, did you ever race? I said, yeah, I used to race. He said, I can tell by the way you pedal, you oh. know? And, and, and he said, you should come back. And I don't think he actually meant come back to the pros. He, I think he meant come back to riding and health. You know, I was, BMI I was literally massive. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I just started, you know, this was, I don't know, 06, 07, something like that. And I started riding and I, this was May. I think it was like May of 06. And, um, and I said, well, you know, if, let me just start riding my bike. And you're in New York city. And I'm in New York city. Like, so I, I started riding my bike, you know, uh, started, um, losing weight and then decided at the end of that year to start to race in 07, uh, as a way to stay motivated to, to, um, to ride. And I called Max Testa, my old coach. And I said, I'm going to race next year. I need like a program. You know, I was at the magazine, so I had access to everything. So called in a power meter, called in good bikes, called in good clothes, you know, started really like full on training, mm -hmm. which meant riding the trainer at night, riding in Central Park at night. And just the weight started coming off, sent away from my license, didn't have, I hadn't had a license in 10 years. My license comes back as a cat one. Because the license before that that I had was a pro license. Uh -huh. And I'm literally like, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. You know? And I, I thought about downgrading, but just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I, uh, yeah, I just signed up for all these races and started racing locally in New York. Started coming out to California, doing some of the races, you know, some of the big pro one crits, uh, like Merced and things like that. Would finish some, would get dropped in some. Won a local race in New York and, you know, uh, by, by that spring, you know, and just kind of started, my body started remembering, you know, my, everything started coming back, yep. you know, you don't, you don't lose that. Right. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's all of a sudden I, I weighed, I don't know, 150 pounds and, you know, I dropped three suit sizes or sure. something, you know? So my first recollection, which you may or may not recall, and maybe there's two sides to the story is, Late in 2007, I believe, we we are on Priority Health. I'm on Priority Health, and we get a message that says from our team manager, hey, we have this guy named J-O-A-O -O, space C-O-R-R-E-I-A, Joao Correa, who's coming to the team, and let's welcome him to the team. Um, he's got some chops. He's got some some you know world championship racing experience. He's, he's won a whole lot of races in this day. And then you immediately chime in to the team email and you say, if anybody needs anything, let me know. And I was like, goodness, that sounds like an awfully forward and generous offer. And I currently don't have a set of wheels and I kind of need a set of wheels. So I'm going to reply now. And I said, hey, uh, strange request, but I need a set of wheels. And within 24 hours, a boxer arrives at my front door from Bill Strickland, who at that point in my mind was a, uh, something of a mythical legend because his name is at the beginning of Bicycling Magazine, which is every aspiring cyclist's favorite rag. 
And since then, we've become very good friends, um, including becoming teammates on on that team on uh, Bissell, and then ultimately two years later on Cervelo Test Team. So now glossing over a little bit of time, when I go back and tell stories to people about Cervelo Test Team, I say that they were ahead of their time in terms of media production, sponsor interaction, the quality of the content they produced. Absolutely. It is crazy given how successful they did things in 2009 and 10 that that absolutely sets the benchmark for, for what teams are finally doing now a half dozen years later. Why didn't it succeed? Uh, I think it's simple. I mean, they ran out of money. You know, they weren't able to find a sponsor um, and they ran out of money, you know, and it, in the end, it actually, I, it was probably the final nail on the company um, you know, and, and how, um, they ended up, um, losing, losing the company, which is a real shame because they were absolutely ahead of their time. They took a massive, massive step. Uh, and unfortunately they came out, you know, uh, a whole lot of factors like the economy tanking at that time didn't help, you know, but, um, but it's, you know, both Gerard and Phil, I think what they did was takes, takes a lot of, a lot of balls. You know, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it is, they were the first ones to do all that stuff and now everybody does it, mm-hmm. you know, or tries to do it. To me, it's still, it's still the most unique program I've seen and now working pretty deep in professional cycling. Um, I still am amazed that anytime any one of us sees each other, whether it's riders or staff, mm-hmm. there is, there is a, just this incredible smile and bond that is, is because of that team. You know, you see a sport, an old sports director, you see an old mechanic, you see an old swineur, you see an old teammate, and there's something there that is incredible that I, I don't see with any other team. 100%. You know, that, that, is, that is really nice, you know. And it was because of the atmosphere that, that those guys started in that team, and, and it, it was real. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think a huge portion of that is how international, how diverse the team was. 25 riders, which is, you know, still relatively small on a world tour scale, but 15 nationalities. Um, so just the, the need to be one unit, I think was, was something that I've never experienced on any other team. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they did things that like, you know, when I went on the team, you know, like, you know, nobody would do that. You know, that's, that's, that was insane. No, no team would ever do something like that yet. They did, you mm-hmm. know, they were super far ahead, you know, on, on a lot of different, uh, a lot of different fields. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this popped up in my mind recently that we were talking about the value of a team. This was a conversation with, uh, with Eddie Holt who's the CEO of EF, the corporation mm-hmm. and, and EF owns the team. And we were talking about the value of, professional cycling teams and how wins in pro cycling, they'll bring it, they'll, they'll earn brand awareness, but they don't build brand equity. So a team that's going to win a lot. Yeah. People are going to see that more often and they're more excited about it, but it doesn't necessarily make the team worth any more money because a team is a pretty fickle thing to just buy and sell a team. You now work in a, you work in a variety of different facets, but one of which is, is the, sports management side of cycling. What is your opinion on something like EF that's taking a whole different approach where EF 
owns the team instead of, say, a Sky, a Quick Step, virtually every other team out there cutting a check to just let that team ride for a year, two years, three years. Yeah, I think you know. I think EF definitely—it's a unique program, but they bought into a, what was already a unique program. Yeah, you know, with 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 um, with Slipstream had built from the very beginning. It started on on uh, the premise of you know having a clean team and you know kind of going against the grain at the time. Um, and they always did things differently. But like most cycling teams that aren't backed by big companies, they always struggled. You know, and and if you're constantly focused on surviving, it's really hard to do all the other things well. And I think what EF has done is it's come in and it's taken a lot of that pressure off, so that they can um, focus on you know the important the the business of actually running a professional sports team. Um, and I think being a company that that it who, you know its foundation is education, I think they brought a different way of thinking to how the team is run. And what's important for the team that also happened to gel very well with the culture that the team always had, you know. So um, I, th- I think every team needs to win. Like if you're a professional sports franchise, um, you, you have to win. Like it's part of it's part of sports, right? So I, I, I think it's whether you that's you prioritize that over all all else, you know. So you have teams like Ineos and Sky that are really built to be excellent sporting organizations that win. That's that's it. The team was started with the goal of winning the Tour de France and being the first British winner of the Tour de France, uh, and they achieved that pretty quickly. You know, and their single focus is performance. You know, they 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 run a program and they hire people that are going to be able to perform and win. Uh, not every team is like that. You know, and I think I think you know you become a much more multi-dimensional team if your only focus isn't just winning. Not that there's anything wrong with the focus of just winning. It is professional sports, you know, but I think that's where EF is connecting and I think it's where it's doing so well is because it's able to do different things, you know, and you look at, you know, the um, the alternative calendar that I think was something really that was brought on by Rafa uh, as a sponsor saying, yeah, we want to be a clothing sponsor, but, you know, we have these other goals that, w- that these things have to map to, you know, and, and, and you start creating, you know, more interesting things for regular fans to, to, to connect with, you mm-hmm. know, than just a performance, you know, I mean, you look at things like the, the band that won the UCI award, uh, the beef fetter band, the English guys won the UCI fan award. Okay. You know, there are these guys that go to the tour and they have music and they have outfits and they have basically a band and they do <laughs> this really funny song that's, I think, a Dutch or a Belgian song by these English guys dressed as the beef fetters, the gin. Okay. You know, and it and it's like fascinating. And people have, you know, at least I, I remember seeing it. I remember calling Teo, one of our riders, English riders, and I remember thinking, this is amazing. This yeah. is awesome. You know, and they've, there's been some pick up on it and they won a UCI fan award, you know, but it's like, <laughs> it's because it's fun uh-huh. because it's bringing something different to cycling than just the seriousness of focusing on training, being as light as you can, winning bike races. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, cycling is an amazing community and it's just a big global party, you know, and, and obviously racing is a, is a big part of it because it's the center of it. But, you know, it's sometimes things become too serious and it become less fun. Mm-hmm. So, so teams like that, I think, are connecting because they're able to be multidimensional. 
couldn't agree more. A team like Sky Ineos, they are, in my mind, they're the New York Yankees. You know, they're the team that you might love to hate because they are so successful because because they are going to win the Tour de France for X number of consecutive years. Yeah. There's there's 20, 20 plus World Tour teams. There's only one that could be in the top, or there's a podium, and yeah, that leaves another. Yeah, and what they're doing is teams. unique, man. I mean, it's you know them and and the Soinic, uh, Lotto Jumbo in sure. the last year or two. You know, you really you're looking at these teams, and you know they really are um, doing an amazing job at on the performance side, and there's a reason for that. You know, like it's it's that's their focus. You know, and they're breaking it down, and and they're building it back up with the focus of winning, yep. and they're able to do that. Uh, not to get too lost, too deep in the weeds. Do you think? Do you think the cycling calendar is too busy? And by that I mean, to kind of quick step, they win. You know, whatever it is this year, like seventy-five races. Yeah, and that doesn't count the second and third places they have. I mean, it's like sure, that's pure wins. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, your average cycling fan will have heard of seventy-five mm, percent of those. There's another twenty-five percent of those races that you know virtually no one's heard of unless you're. You live and die by by the sport. I mean, if you're a, if you're a professional runner or triathlete, which of course is a sport of one, you're going to compete very few times. Cycling is there are so many competitive days. Um, do you think there's what are the interesting things that do you think the UCI could institute to make the sport more appealing or approachable to fans? And maybe the answer is going back to the EF uh, alternative calendar stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I think it depends a lot on the country. What's yeah. appealing in the U.S. is completely different. What's appealing in Europe, and even within Europe, you've got a lot of different cultural issues. You know, a lot of these races, they're historical races. You know, they're. I mean, cycling has always been kind of a a local global sport, um, and now with the UCI, they're really trying to globalize it and go find the events where the money is. And this, and God knows, the sport needs money. But what's happened is now all of a sudden you've got riders competing from January to the end of October, uh, and races are always competitive now. It's not no longer that you start the season, you ride your way into shape. You know, now it's like every single race is hyper competitive mm -hmm. and, and you're seeing more crashes, you're seeing more dangerous situations, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's if it's having more riders on teams, if it's, you know, uh, having less races. Um, you know, I know that it's it's a, you know, it's a business model that's really really difficult, it's really challenging that there's no gates, you know, all the stuff that everybody's listening to this podcast has already heard, you know, there's everything is based on on sponsorship, you know. But you've got you know, I think from my point of view, in terms of what I see is the biggest issue is you just don't, the stakeholders are just not all aligned. They're, you know, they're all against each other and you can't really align whether it's the teams, athletes, race organizers, governing body, and then the behemoth that is the Tour de France. They're not all kind of going in the same direction. You almost need you know, we had this in baseball, we had this in basketball, we had this in, you know, American football as well. You almost need somebody to come in and just buy out the sport and then control everything, mm -hmm. you know, and give, have the teams be stable, you know, have the events be stable, you know, but, but almost kind of take over the whole thing and just, um, you know, uh, really think of it as a business, sort of like what Formula One did and where yeah. Formula One is yeah. now. 
you know, figure out, you know, it's like figure out a way to make it more exciting, you know, and cycling tends to be in a way anti, anti, anti technology, anti everything that is development, whether it's equipment or access to information, you know, like they have the whole radio controversy. Some races you can have it, some races you can't, you know, like open the freaking radios, man. Let everybody listen to what really goes on in those radios, you know? And, and that's, to me, that's the big issue is that it's so fragmented. It's so, you know, people aren't all working, um, in the same direction. You know, recently there's the whole controversy of, um, you know, the, the race calendar and the teams and how the teams weren't consulted and, you know, everything that comes out, letters from, you know, the, 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 the team organizations to, to the tour and to the UCI. And it's insane. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy that like that stuff doesn't get ironed out, you know, before it becomes public, you know, and the problem is everybody's got different interests and they're not aligning their interests. And, from you know my point of view, until you start aligning all of these interests, the sport's not going to grow. You know, couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I think all those are great examples between American sports and Formula One, and yeah, there's there are so many players at play. It's so hard to align. But I'm curious and optimistic that if we look back at cycling in 20 years, that it is doing the 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 things that those other sports have done to actually make it a professional professional sport because I think it's currently in a professional amateur status in the grand scheme of things. Or as I like to call it, call it a, a, a properly well-organized riot. <laughs> That's even better than what I got. All right, so let's pretend... Let's pretend you, uh, I'm thinking of the right circumstance that this would happen. I was going to say, let's pretend you wheel your bike onto an elevator and somebody says to you, ah, you ride a bike, except you have people around you. And so I can't picture you wheeling your bike on an elevator in the first place. Let's pretend somebody watched you get out of a car and there was a bike on the roof and you're at a hotel and then you get on the elevator and that person's on the elevator with you and they say, oh, hey, I saw you get out of that car with a bike on the roof. That's a nice bike. What do you do? And you say, what? What do you do? In That's this- a good question. I, I get asked this a lot. What do I do? I. Um, What's your business card read? Uh, well, I, 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 well, I don't have business cards, but um, <laughs> I usually say I'm a sports agent because that just makes it easy for everybody. Uh-huh. You know, people know what a sports agent is. You know, technically that's what I do uh, as one of the things I do. Um, you know, and, and then they say, Oh, what, you know, what sports I said, I, you know, you know, the Tour de France, I say, yes, like I represent athletes that are in the Tour de France. So my specialty is professional cycling, you know, and then they can kind of conceptualize it for them. Uh Um, you know, but that's one of the different things that I do, you know, the agency course. So that I founded with, uh, my partner, Ken Somer, um, in 2011, you know, is, is, is half of what I do. And then obviously the other half is in Gamba, the bike touring company that I founded in 2000, um, 2012. Um, so I, I work in the space of bikes, you know, in the space of having fun with bikes, you know, uh, with whether it's athletes or whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, uh, giving people the opportunity to experience these great places we go to with the touring company and be surrounded by, you know, staff that, you know, is like a pro team. So it's basically what I do. And you, my impression, having worked with you in a variety of capacities, is you bring bring professionalism to a professional amateur sport 
Um, obviously, the Tour de France is as big as it gets, and you know that's one of the biggest sporting events in the world. You you took a leap of faith in starting Corso and starting the the athlete uh, representation business. I think with the with Corso, I think I was I was more like talked into it by Ken at the time. I, re, I remember I just didn't want Ken to get hurt, you know. Well, there's truth to that. I mean, I was picking your brain. Like we were former teammates, yeah. and I knew that you had a mind for the industry. And I was like, what should I do in this in this particular juncture? I happen to have an agent at the time, and I mean, I mean, this speaks to the next you, point. Were you with Andrew at the time? Yeah, that's right. You yeah. were with Andrew. I so you were not an agent, but you cared. Yeah. And that is something that is also a thread that that is woven through you is you are all about relationships and you you are about caring about your athletes in any sort of relationship you're in. So it's a crazy leap of faith to say, oh, we're going to start this agency. Um, and I think, you know, backtrack five minutes when I said, what is it you do? And you said, I'm a professional sports agent. Like, I think most of our listeners will have a dime a dozen Jerry Maguire. Like I can picture what that person yeah. is. And that's, that's not you because you do care much more about making the person a better person. But Jerry person. cared. That's why Jerry started the agency, right? Remember, like, he took the fish, he took the girl. I should like, point out, I've never yeah. seen the movie. You never saw I've the I've never movie? seen Jerry Maguire. Oh, okay. My well, best friend has also never seen Titanic, so... so yeah, well, I would say definitely watch Jerry Maguire, okay. you know? But Jerry, I would say Jerry cared. Okay. You know, Jerry cared. Well, yeah, you... you that's something you have taught me, is that life is all about relationships. And that is a... That is something that ties together what you do in both Corso and in Gamba. Yeah. Um, that, of course, can come with perks and they can be a dime a dozen or they can come with their pitfalls. So what what have been the downsides of, of taking a leap of faith and starting these businesses? Well, I think, you know, at the time when I, I remember when we started the agency, you know, with Ken, I was working on LinkedIn. Uh, after I left Cervelo, I went to work, uh, moved back to San Francisco, went to work for LinkedIn. And, you know, that was bef that was before the IPO. It was before, you know, there was a lot of opportunity there. Um, so, you know, I, I think the leaving a really stable company with and leaving all the, all the stock I left on the table, that was a huge leap of faith. Um, I think that, you know, the biggest thing is that I, when you work for yourself, when you're creating something, you know, you're it, you know, you're like Ken and I, it's, it's just the two of us on this one, you know, and, and if it, it works based on the quality of your work and your ability to create value or it doesn't, there is no backup plan. So I think for me, the thing that's been the best part of it is in a way, the, the stability of the instability. You know, the fact that you better be comfortable with instability and that in itself can provide um, a lot of stability, you know, and for both businesses, for me, you know, I've, I've met some amazing people. I work with, you know, great athletes and, you know, uh, help them solve problems in their careers, help them build value and, you know, get deals that maybe they wouldn't have gotten if they weren't working with us. Um, you know, and we started with a few um, guys like you, Lawrence, um, you know, Sergio Paulinho. And now it's like, we've got, you know, the last world champion, you know, we've got the last under 23 world time trial champion, the last professional world champion, you know, and all of a sudden the deals are a completely different deal. So you, you're able to see the value you can create for the athletes, 
and you're able to help them make decisions that I think really affect their lives. Uh, on on the Ngamba side, you know, I, you know, obviously riding bikes is fun and riding bikes is great and doing that in places like Tuscany, Portugal, you know, Hillsburg, you know, is amazing because of, to, for me, the food and wine. You know, the food and wine is amazing and what happens at a table uh, between people that have been out riding during the day, then come back and share stories around a great meal. You know, that's, that's for me the most important thing. You know, I, I love food and wine. Uh, I love to cook. I love to entertain people. I love people in general, you know, and I think that's where for me the, the, these businesses are so incredible is because it, it, it exposes me to a lot of different people and it allows me to touch a lot of different people in different ways, whether it's an athlete, you know, and being able to, you know, get them a great deal. And in cases of the kids we've taken pro, make their dreams a reality or, you know, whether it's, you know, a major finance individual who can basically buy anything with money, but, um, you know, can't buy these relationships and these people we introduced them to because they're just not in their sphere. And to see how that transforms their lives when they bring people like Alessandro into their lives or Paulo and Lucky, you know, these people that they meet through us. You know, what happens to them afterwards? You know, I, I find that incredibly satisfying, you know, and I always, I, I, I just, I tell people all the time, this better work out because if it doesn't, <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to go back to work for other people. I might be, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm employable anymore after this one. So, yeah, your businesses are the, the coming together of, they're circumstantial. It's the right place at the right time and the right skill set that you say, you know what, I'm going to take this leap of faith and I'm going to start a business. Now, a handful of years in, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently from the very beginning of either of them in Gamba or Corso? Uh, I probably would have done business plans. I probably would have planned a little better, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think I think at Ngamba, we didn't have our first budget until about year six, seven. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't, I, we still haven't really done a, a business plan. But I think, you know, understanding that part of it, the cost side would have been super helpful, you know? Uh, and a lot of this has been trial and error and trying to figure out how to create an amazing experience while at the same time having a sustainable business. You know, that's challenging, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're small. I think with the athletes, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic environment. It's constantly changing. There isn't a lot of big agencies in the space. I think that eventually there will be big agencies in the space. I think it's to be able to uh, provide more value for athletes with expertise that we just don't have in-house. You know, at the end of the day, our expertise is contract negotiation from a deal-making perspective. You know, that's what we do really well. Identify talent, nurture that talent, you know, put them in places where that talent is, is, is nurturable, for example, on Axel's team, and that the moment that they're ready to turn pro, be able to give them opportunities and give them the pluses and minuses of those different opportunities because some kids have multiple opportunities, mm-hmm. you know, and as their careers grow, you know, be able to negotiate great deals for them in ways that continues to grow their career because sometimes the highest dollar today might not eventually be the highest overall dollar amount over a career. And in cycling, that's a really dangerous thing. You know, you see this all the time. A rider makes a switch. All of a sudden, they're on a team. They're just not successful anymore. They're done. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they could be done within two years. If you don't have the right management of those athletes, if you don't have people behind them that help them make the right decisions and when things go wrong, help them solve those, those things, I think it can be really dangerous. So having more, I think more, having more of that expertise in house to be able to turn key for our athletes is one of the things that, you know, I wish we had more of, you know, but that it's just not, a, it's not just not available in the space because at the end of the day, you know, the top of the market is Peter Sagan makes five and a half million, you know, like it's, it's not the NBA, it's not the NFL, you know, and, and then the salaries start at say 40, 50 grand, sure. you know, so. So you, you glossed over it a second ago, five minutes ago, Mads Peterson, one of your athletes won the world championships this year, the elite men road race, the sort of the, 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 the biggest race you can win in a year outside of the Tour de France. Um, you also have the U23 TT champ. You and Ken have have aligned yourself with some incredible young talent um, and, and built the agency in a fairly short time. Um, do you think you ever would have expected to win a world championship this early? Well, I mean, that was know. a awesome race like, yeah it was and the funny thing is the day before mad said you know tomorrow i'm gonna go from 70k out yeah. you know and he had been on really good form and the danish team with michael valgren uh also had you know and michael a guy who was on top form um he, he, i don't know if you you know i mean the world is such an interesting race and it can be such a crapshoot um i don't think we sat there thinking We've got a really good chance at winning, but we knew we had a chance in both of those guys, mm-hmm. you know, because they were riding well. And the way Mads won uh, the race the week before, and I don't know if it was France or Belgium, you know, it was pretty impressive. And and he's just a guy that you know, it, the weather like that all plays well for those guys, you know. Uh, we had some riders like Ruben Guerrero who won really good form, so we knew that we had some guys that could spoil the party, you know. Uh, and he did, you know, he really did. I mean, I think he, every person in the, uh, watching the finale thought Trentine was going to win. It was his yeah. race to lose. Yeah. And then it was yeah. Mads to win. Yeah. But I think after that many kilometers in that sort of weather, man, you just, you just don't know what's going to happen, you know? And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, he's a young kid. He's a great kid. He's been with us since he was a junior, you know, he was really somebody that Ken in particular has nurtured along. Um, and it's, it's just amazing to be sitting there, you know, with, with the world champion in your stable, you know, so. Very cool. Um, all right. You're born in Portugal. You're in New York city for a very long time. You are in lucky and bouncing around Europe a bit as a bike racer. You settle in San Francisco, you do a stint in LA. question is very artistic where is your place that's a good question i don't know i don't i you know i that's a good really good question and this is something i think for me as an immigrant something that i've always sort of struggled with you know because i came to the us when i was 11 and when i would go back to portugal and i i would always be treated as the american even on a national team so i i am both american and i'm portuguese my place is in different places you know, my home is is between here, Sausalito, um, and Lisbon and Tuscany. 
you know, like I'm comfortable in all of those places. I have different reasons to be in all of those places. You know, I feel very much at home in all of those places. You know, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't have one place where I say this is home. You know, those three places for me are home, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, you know, my son lives here. So, you know, when he, when I'm here, um, he's with me and, you know, it's, it's obviously that's home and, Lisbon is home and so is Tuscany. So related question. You are, you are always available and that's part of being the, a, a relationship person. So whether like, I rarely know where you are, I might have caught a glimpse of you in Lisbon or know that you're in Lucky or know that you're at a particular bike race or back here in California. How do you recharge personally? How do you rest? Uh, I, I turn off my phone when I go to sleep. Okay. So I do that, yeah. you know, and I didn't used to do that. But because I am constantly back and forth to Europe, you know, I start getting woken up in the middle of the night for, you know, no reason other than people just didn't know I was there. So I started sharing my location with people, friends of mine, that I just go, here, you know, when you want to see it, like, you know. Can I have that? Yes, you can. Oh, my God. I always I, wonder where you are. I've got, <laughs> I've actually done it with quite a few people, and people are always wondering, like, you know, what about privacy? I'm like, I, I, I don't know, you can know where I am. I, I think sharing my location is the greatest thing ever. I think so, too. Right? So, You're only going to share with people who are sort of curious. But. So I've got a bunch of friends I shared with, and, you know, like, I always, you know, I think uh, I always tell people, like, you know, Instagram, like, you're probably going to know where I am. Although now I post less and less, so that's no longer reliable. Um, I, you know, I recharge in different ways. I, um, you know, I read quite a bit, you know, I spend quite a bit of time by myself. Um, you know, I enjoy being around people at the same time. And for me, that's recharging, you know, tonight we're having a dinner. I, I love that. Like for me, the ultimate, my, my happy, my happy spot is cooking for people, you know, uh, so that's for me a way to recharge, um, you know, and, um, and that's, that's it, you know, those very, it's, it's actually that pretty simple, you know, like I, I enjoy the places where I spend my time, which is, you know, those three places mostly, um, you know, being at home, you know, being with the people I care about, my son, um, you know, being with my friends, having people over for dinner, going for the occasional bike ride, you know, I finally, after all these years, you know, f enjoy cycling when I ride just for riding. You know, I'm no longer, you know, constantly disappointed that I'm no longer fit, that I just can't climb. And, you know, living here in Marin, it's difficult to, to not go uphill, you know, but sometimes that's riding a bike. Uh, I generally ride with one or two people only. You know, I'm, I'm funny, I'm one of those cyclists that when I ride, I don't really say anything, you know. So generally I ride by myself or with one or two friends that know that I don't, I'm not a big conversationalist when I ride. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Where and what do you suppose you'd be doing if you didn't get that first bike? Or if you, if you hadn't pursued racing as a teenager? Publishing? Law? Yeah. Studying Russian. Man, it's crazy. Like I, when I look back, you know, I'm, I'm 44, so still fairly young. But when I look at all the different things and pivots I've done and places I've lived and the, the chance things of my parents immigrated, you know, being able to be educated here in the U.S., you know, bumping into Alessandro's store and forming a relationship with him and then taking that to my life in Italy. Um, you know, there's constantly so much change. 
it's really hard to see what would I do? What would I be doing if I wasn't a bike racer? Bike racing gave me discipline, gave me, you know, kind of everything that's made me today and how I work and how I view things and relationships is all through cycling. I can't even imagine not having life, not having been a, a, a cyclist for all of those years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's kind of a stupid question I'm, because I'm, it's I like, like what I, I like my life. So I'm yeah. glad I'm where I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, easy, easy final three, and or hard. <clears throat> three questions. One, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? Two, what is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never been? And three, having just said you're a pretty insular guy when it comes to picking a group that you're going to go ride with, with whom, living or otherwise, fictional or non, would you like to go for a bike ride? Let's see. Favorite place to ride a bike? Favorite place to ride a bike? I think that's Marin. I think this, I remember when I first moved here and I was commuting to the city from Mill Valley, uh, I couldn't believe how beautiful that commute was. You know, I think Marin is, of all the places I've ever ridden, and I've ridden a lot of places in Europe especially, Marin is still the place where I just get blown blown away every time I go for a bike ride. Um, place I wish I would have ridden and I've never ridden there, Japan. I, I'd love to go to Japan. Same, let's do it. You know, I'd love to, I'm actually working on something right now. It's not Japan, but it's Argentina. Um, you know, uh, the, the chef Francis Mullen does a week in his little remote Island. And I have this, I've, I'm sketching this thing out of my head where uh, we, we do a gravel trip for a week in Southern Argentina and then go over to his Island and, and, and cook with him for a week, you know? This so this is the dude, does he have chef's table in the yeah, episode? Oh yeah, my Lord. Yeah. That's, that's so that islands, you know? Uh, that's, so that's, that's for me, yeah. it's like, you know, that would be a place that I'd love to do it, you know, that or Japan, yeah. somewhere completely foreign. I remember being in Iceland for the first time and going, my God, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, it's like you go to these places where it, it's nothing like anything you've seen before. Otherworldly. Although Iceland's a little cold, so I don't know about, yeah. about yeah. riding in Iceland, but <laughs> Japan, um, you know, uh, or, um, or, um, or I think Argentina would be cool to ride a bike and people... To ride a bike with, you know, my, my favorite riding partner is, you know, and the person that I enjoy mostly riding with is, is Raul, you know, my, my old soigneur, my, one of my first teammates as a pro and my old soigneur, you know, still with me to this day. He, I, I riding with him is always like really funny because it's just, he's a, he's such a caretaker you know, and he knows me so well and he can read my moods. He can like, he knows exactly what to do. And he's, he's, you know, he's my, he's my favorite riding partner. He's the only person I share a room with, you know, when I'm on trips, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's uh, and, um, and he, yeah. So Raul is, is probably my, you know, my, the person I, I would most like to ride with and that I do get to ride with all the time. Magnificent. Well, that is it. That's all she wrote. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Joao. Thank you all for being part of this ride. 50 episodes are now a wrap. That's incredible. Your continued support of this podcast through your reviews 
hitting that subscribe button, suggesting this podcast to friends and fam. It means so much. Those reviews are powerful. They are incredibly helpful and gratefully appreciated. Keep them coming. Go to iTunes or whatever podcast app you're listening to this pod today. Five-star reviews are welcome. And while you're at it, head on over to IamTedKing.com for a brand new website. If you've not seen it yet, we hit the relaunch button just a few weeks back, and it's got a whole new look. IamTedKing.com. There you have it. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Until next time, please enjoy the ride. <laughs>